Part One, Chapter Seven of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. Mushrooms on the Moor, by Frank W. Borum. Part One, Chapter Seven, with the Wolves in the Wild. One. I like to think that Jesus spent forty nights of his wondrous life out in the wild with the wolves. He was with the wild beasts, Mark tells us, and the statement is not recorded for nothing. Night is the great leveler. Desert and prairie are indistinguishable in the night. Night folds everything in sable robes, and the loveliest landscape is one with the dreariest prospect. North and south, east and west are all alike in the night. Here is the wild of the West. A vast silence reigned, Jack London tells us. The land itself was a desolation, lifeless, without movement, so lone and cold that the spirit of it was not even that of sadness. There was a hint in it of laughter, the masterful and incommunicable wisdom of eternity laughing at the futility of life and the effort of life. It was the wild, the savage, frozen-hearted northern wild. Here, I say, is the wild, and here is the life of the wild. Bill opened his mouth to speak, but changed his mind. Instead, he pointed towards the wall of darkness that pressed about them from every side. There was no suggestion of form in the utter blackness. Only could be seen a pair of eyes gleaming like live coals. Henry indicated with his hand a second pair and a third. A circle of the gleaming eyes had drawn about their camp. Now and again a pair of eyes moved, or disappeared to appear again a moment later. What did it mean, those restless flashing eyes, like fireflies breaking across the surface of the darkness? It simply meant that they were in the wild at night, and they were with the wild beasts. And what does it mean, this vivid fragment from my Bible? It means that he was in the wild at night, night after night for forty nights, and he was with the wild beasts. He heard the roar of the lion as it awoke the echoes of the slumbering forest. He saw the hyena pass stealthily near him in the track of a timid deer, and watched the cheetah prowl through the brushwood in pursuit of a young gazelle. He heard the squeal of the hare as the crouching fox sprang out, and the flutter of the partridge as the jackal seized its prey. He heard the slither of the viper as it glided through the grass beside his head, and was startled by the shrieking of the night birds and the flapping of their wings, as they whirled and swooped about him. And he, too, saw the gleaming eyes of the hungry wolves as they drew their fierce cordon around him. For he was out in the wild for forty nights, and he was with the wild beasts. 2. And yet he was unhurt. Now why was he unharmed those forty nights with the scrub around him alive with claws and talons and fangs? He was with the wild beasts, Mark tells us, and yet no lion sprang upon him, no lone wolf slashed at him with her frightful fangs. No serpent bit him. Henry, said one of Jack London's heroes to the other, as they watched the wolfish eyes flashing hither and thither in the darkness, it's an awful misfortune to be out of ammunition. But he was unarmed and unprotected. No blade was in his hand. No ring of fire blazed round about him to affright the prowling brutes. And yet he was unharmed. Not a tooth nor a claw left scratch or gash upon him. Why was it? It will never do to fall back upon the miraculous, for the very point of the story of the temptation is his sublime refusal to sustain himself by superhuman aid. 
By the employment of miracle he could easily have commanded the stones to become bread, and he might thus have grandly answered the taunt of the tempter, and have appeased the gnawings of his body's hunger at one and the same time. But it would have spoiled everything. He went into the wild to be tempted, like as we are tempted. And since miracle is not at our disposal, he would not let it be at his. It is impossible, therefore, to suppose that he scorned the aid of miracle to protect him from hunger, but called in the aid of miracle to protect him from the beasts. Now, in order to solve this problem, I turned to my Bible beginning at the very beginning. And there, in the very first chapter, I found the explanation. Have dominion, God said, over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. There was nothing really miraculous in Christ's authority over the fish. I never see a man dangling with a line without a sigh for our lost dominion. There was nothing really miraculous in Christ's immunity from harm. The wolves did not tear him. He told them not to do so. He was a man, just such a man as God meant all men to be. And therefore he had dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that creepeth upon the earth. He was unscathed in the midst of the wolves, not because he was superhuman, but because he was truly human. We are something less than human, the wrecks and shadows of men. Having forfeited the authority of our humanity, the fish no longer obey us, and we have perforce to dangle for them with hooks and strings. The wolves and the tigers no longer stand off at our command, and we have to fall back upon campfires and pistols. It is very humiliating. The crown is fallen from our heads, and all things finned and furred and feathered mock us in our shame. But thine, O man of men, is the power and the dominion, and all the creatures of the wild obey thee. He was with the wild beasts. 3. What did those wild, dumb, eloquent eyes say to Jesus as they looked wonderingly at him out there in the wild? As they bounded out of the thicket, crouched, stared at him, and slunk away, what did they say to him, those great, lean wolves? And what did he say to them? Animals are such eloquent things, especially at such times. The foxes have holes, Jesus said long afterwards, remembering as he said it how he watched the creatures of the wild seek out their lairs. And the birds of the air have nests, he said, remembering the twittering and fluttering in the boughs above his head, as the feathered things settled down for the night. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head, he concluded, as he thought of those long, long nights in the homeless wild. Did he mean that the wolves were better off than he was? We are all tempted to think so when the conflict is pressing too hardly upon us. There seems to be less choice, and therefore less responsibility, among the beasts of the field. Less play of right and wrong. I think, said Walt Whitman, I think I could turn and live with animals. They are so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them sometimes an hour at a stretch. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or industrious over the whole earth. Was some flitting, hovering thought like this part of the temptation in the wild? Is that what Mark means when he says so significantly that he was with the wild beasts? Surely, for he was tempted in all points, like as we are, and we have all been tempted in this. Good old Carlo, we have said, as we patted the dog's head, 
looking down out of our eyes of anguish into his calm, impassive gaze. Good old Carlo, you don't know anything of such struggles, old boy. And we have fancied for a moment that Carlo had the best of it. It was a black and blasphemous thought, and he struck it away, as we should strike at a hawk that fluttered in front of our faces and threatened to pick at our eyes. But for one moment it hovered before him, and he caught its ugly glance. It is a very ugly glance. Our capacity for great inward strife, and for great inward suffering, is the one proof we have that we were made in the image of God. 4. Was he thinking, I wonder, when he went out to the wolves in the wild, of those who, before so very long, would be torn to pieces by hungry beasts for his dear sake? Today, said Amplonius, a teacher of the persecuted Roman Christians, today, by the cruel order of Trajan, Ignatius was thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. He it was, my children, whom Jesus took when as yet he was but a little child, and set him in the midst of the disciples, and said, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And now, from the same Lord who that day laid his sacred hands upon his head, he has received the martyr crown. But Ignatius did not fear the beasts, my children. I have seen a letter which he wrote but yesterday to the aged Polycarp, the angel of the church of Smyrna. In it he says that the hungry creatures have no terrors for him. Would to God, he said, that I were come to the beasts prepared for me. I wish that with their gaping mouths they were now ready to rush upon me. Let the angry beasts tear asunder my members, so that I may win Christ Jesus. Thus Ignatius wrote but yesterday to the beloved Polycarp, and today, with a face like the face of an angel, he gave himself to the wolves. We know not which of us shall suffer next, my children. The people are still crying wildly, the Christians to the lions. It may be that I, your teacher, shall be the next to witness for the faith. But let us remember that for forty days and forty nights Jesus was himself with the wild beasts, and not one of them durst harm him. And he is still with the wild beasts wherever we his people are among them and their cruel fangs can only tear us so far as it is for our triumph and his glory. So spake Amplonius, and the church was comforted. And at this hour there is, in the catacomb at St. Calixtus, at Rome, a rude old picture of Jesus among the untamed creatures of the wild. The thought that lions and leopards crouched at his feet in the days of his flesh and were subject unto him was very precious to the hunted and suffering people. 5. Sometimes, too, I fancy that he saw, in these savage brutes that harmed him not, a symbol and a prophecy of his own great conquest. For they, with their hateful fangs and blooded talons, were part of his vast constituency. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, Paul declares. Richard Jeffreys pointed to a quaint little English cottage beside a glorious bank of violets. But he could never bring himself to pluck the fragrant blossoms, for in the cottage the dreaded smallpox had once raged. It seemed, says Jeffreys, to quite spoil the violet bank. There is something in disease so destructive, as it were, to flowers. And as the violets shared the scourge, so the creatures shared the curse. And as they stared dumbly into the eyes of the Son of God, they seemed to half understand that their redemption was drawing nigh. In nature herself, as Longfellow says, there is a waiting and hoping, a looking and yearning after an unknown something. Yes, when above there on the mountain, the lonely eagle looks forth into the grey dawn to see if the day comes not. 
when by the mountain torrent the brooding raven listens to hear if the chamois is returning from his nightly pasture in the valley, and when the rising sun calls out the spicy odors of the alpine flowers, then there awake in nature an expectation and a longing for a future revelation of God's majesty. Did he see this brooding sense of expectancy in the fierce eyes about him? And did he rejoice that the hope of the wild would in him be gloriously fulfilled? Who knows? In his Cloister and the Hearth, Charles Reed tells of the temptation and triumph of Clement the Hermit. And one keen frosty night, as he sang the praises of God to his tuneful psaltery, and his hollow cave rang with his holy melody, he heard a clear whine, not unmelodious. It became louder. He peeped through the chinks of his rude door, and there sat a great red wolf moaning melodiously with his nose high in the air. Clement was delighted. My sins are going, he cried, and the creatures of God are owning me. And in a burst of enthusiasm he sang, Praise him, all ye creatures of his. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And all the time he sang, the wolf bayed at intervals. Did Jesus, I wonder, see the going of the world's sin, and the departure of its primal curse in the faces of the wild things that howled and roared about him? As the fierce things prowled around him and left him unharmed, did he see a symbol of his final subjugation of all earth's savage and restless elements? Who shall say? 6. He was with the wild beasts, says Mark, and the angels ministered unto him. Life always hovers between the beasts and the angels, and however wolfish may be the eyes that affright us in the day of our temptation, we may be sure that our solitary struggle is watched by invisible spectators, and that, after the baying of the beasts, we shall hear the angels sing. End of Part 1, Chapter 7